Welcome to Stallside Podcast. But how goes it? Very good today. How are you, Peter? Living the dream, but nightmares are also dreams. Yeah. So on the show today, we've actually got one of our friends coming back. We do. Scott Morrison's back with us. Uh, you know, he was he was with us once before. Very popular show, and, and uh, we've had some people ask for him. And um, you know, I'm going to talk specifically about Foundered Horses. Yeah, this is actually uh, quite a uh, big request amongst the uh, the listener base was to actually have Scott come back and talk about this. And it's a lot more complicated subject than I think people realize. I think it's it's multi- multiple different um, causes and I think that it'll be good to have him come along and actually lay those out and look at his approach to how he treats the horses that have the the individual categories because it's just not like a one-size-fits-all you can't cookbook these things I'm looking forward to seeing what the master does in these situations because they're not all the same right And and those guys can recognize that um, so so well, and and they have so much experience. And Scott's been a pioneer of this, as we've said before. So great to have him back. Yeah, it will be good. So uh, coming up next, Dr. Scott Morrison from the Rude and Riddle Podiatry Service, and he's going to concentrate on laminitis. See you soon, Scott. Welcome back to Stallside. Thank you for having me back. It's really good to see you. Yeah, no, the last show went really good, and uh, we've ha- we've had some listener requests that you come back. Oh wow! So, yep. So, want to take a little bit deeper dive into to laminitis and and talk about that. So, there's a lot of interest. So, we're glad to have you here. I'm good. Hopefully, I can help. Yeah, absolutely. Probably start off by um, there's a lot of terms used, right? Laminitis, founder. Are these interchangeable? No, not quite. Um, you know, laminitis doesn't equal founder, but founder equals a history of laminitis. So, mm-hmm. you know, laminitis basically is inflammation or compromised lamina, which um, leads to founder. And founder is when the coffin bone actually displaces. So once the coffin bone actually moves, we mm-hmm. call it founder or chronic laminitis. So you can have acute laminitis where you just have inflammation with no movement of the bone. Mm-hmm. And 100% reversible as far as we know when they have acute laminitis. But once they founder, they never heal back 100%. They're always compromised to some degree. So you could think of founder as like an end-stage laminitis yes. over, over a long period yeah. of time? Okay. Yeah, that, that's the, uh, the sequence. You don't want to go down. You can either go from laminitis to recovery or laminitis to founder, and then different degrees of healing um, once they founder. Okay. And, and people sort of think about laminitis, but I think we touched on this in your first podcast. It's not really like one sort of cause or one thing. So... As you divide this up in your mind, could you sort of explain to the listeners different sort of types, different scenarios, maybe different mechanisms, and do they all end up in the same place, or is it really like a common clinical presentation at the end of this, but you may get there by different pathways? So how do you work this out in your mind? Yeah, there there are different ways. There are different types of laminitis. We used to think all laminitis was the same, but, uh, you know... With time, we've, we've divided them into three different, basically three different categories based on the cause of laminitis. So um, the three basic causes would be, you know, laminitis secondary to some endocrine abnormality, such as equine metabolic syndrome or, or Cushing's disease. So that's one pathway. Another way is the kind of the catastrophic laminitic, laminitis cases, or secondary to some systemic infection, like a colitis or pneumonia, um, would be the most common 
uh, systemic causes. So basically some systemic inflammatory condition leads to laminitis. And then the third one would be the supporting limb laminitis cases. Uh, those are the ones where horses are bearing weight on one limb uh, excessively, and that causes some things we can talk about, some perfusion deficits in that foot that can lead to uh, laminitis. And, and then there's probably a fourth one. You know, we, we, you, you hear in the old uh, textbooks, road founder, mm-hmm. more, more of a traumatic mechanical kind of laminitis. So um, that, that could potentially, that's probably a fourth uh, mechanism of getting laminitis. Right. Just excessive concussion and excessive mechanical stress on the foot can cause some detachment. Yeah, getting back to the support limb laminitis because I know that's us in the hospital. We really fear that one, and I know the surgeons do too that do the orthopedic surgeries. You're talking about the mechanism of that. So, how does a support limb laminitis come about? Yeah, well, you know, horses are horses are designed for constant movement. You know, if you just imagine a horse's long long legs with no musculature, you know, they need to move to 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 return blood, you know, back up to the. Uh, you know, back up to the circulatory system or back up, you know, towards the heart. So, you know, even horses standing still are never completely still. They're what we call quasi-static. You know, they're always shifting weight. Mm-hmm. In fact, there was a study done by Dr. Hood and uh, one of his grad students years ago where they actually just put a, ho- a normal horses in stocks and just measured how many times. These horses were on force plates in mm-hmm. stocks. So they were able to see how many times horses shifted weight. And you know, you're, a normal horse shifts weight 125 times an hour. Mm. So just imagine a horse that's severely lame on one foot and just, you know, just just constantly standing on one leg without that quasi-static shifting or moving. And it does lead to some perfusion deficits. And, you know, th- those perfusion deficits are a consequence of, of a normal, uh, the normal physiology of a horse's foot. I mean, the foot does some weird vascular things to help it absorb shock. You know, there, there, there are studies showing the horse's foot can absorb so much shock. Like just imagine a racehorse running down a track. You know, the, the amplitudes of the vibrations generated at ground impact are decreased by, you know, 90% by the foot before they reach the pastern. So the foot has a huge capability of absorbing shock. And a lot of that's done by blood flow and perfusion. You know, just imagine a horse's foot swinging through the air. You know, that centripetal force kind of pushes a lot of blood into the foot. The foot hits the ground with tremendous pressures. And, and that, that tissue is being squeezed, and that blood flow is, is then pushed back up the limb. You know, but I don't want to get too far in the weeds or be, make this too complicated, but, you know, the blood flow has to go from, from arteries to capillary, you know, the capillary bed into the veins. And if you imagine the tremendous pressures generated when that foot contacts the ground, that blood, there's so much pressure that that blood would push back up, you know, retrograde back the wrong way up through the arteries. Mm. So there, there are there are some you know different mechanisms in place to clamp off blood flow to the foot when it's fully weight bearing to ensure you know unidirectional you know arteries capillaries veins back up the limb you know to, to preserve that that vascular pattern and and when the foot hits the ground you know those those palmar digital veins are kind of pinched off by the deep digital flexor tendon and there, we have some arteriograms and, and, and some vascular studies that we've, you know, just done just to demonstrate that and show it. And it's been, it's been studies that's been done a long time ago. We just reproduced it for our own interest to see. But the, the, those vessels, those arteries and veins are, are actually pinched off. And so when a horse is fully weight-bearing, the, the arterial and, and venous, uh, those vessels are, I mean, the, the, I'm sorry, I said venous, but the, the arteries are actually pinched off. The arteries are pinched off. 
to, to, to stop the blood from retrograding black back up through the right. arterial bed. So it's a, uh, you know, it's a shock absorbing mechanism that just goes wrong. You know, horses are not supposed to stand fully on one leg for prolonged mm-hmm. periods of time or that those perfusion deficits will actually shut off blood supply to the lamina. That's pretty impressive physiology. You think about a horse galloping. Yeah, like that, that every time. It's, yeah. it's striking multiple times. Yeah. You know, you know, maybe a second. Yeah. Yeah, it's m- multiple times. It's, you know, if you look at the architecture of a horse's foot, it's a small, you know, it's just a pretty small mm-hmm. piece of architecture that absorbs a lot of shock and concussion and, and supports the entire weight of the horse. And a lot of that, so the horse doesn't rely completely on the architecture of the tissues. It relies on blood flow, you know, turgor pressure, you know, fluid within closed spaces to help support and, and absorb shock and help, you know, help support that foot and help it take on that task of absorbing shock and concussion. So, so it, it, it's a bio, it's a, it's a bioengineering, you know, it always, the foot always amazes me. There's always, it's a very complicated little, you know, piece of anatomy on a horse that does a lot of amazing things. It is very complicated. So we, we think about laminitis as being a four limb bilateral affecting both yeah. Leg disease. I, I guess this, you know, having overload as the cause. That's probably is that the only exception, where where, where it might be unilateral and it could be a hind limb, for support limb laminitis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can have uh, most support limb laminitis cases are just one foot, but it can be. I've I've seen supporting limb laminitis cases be. It's not it's not typical, but I've seen it be you know the healthy front foot and both hind feet as well. Um, gotcha. but, but, but they can founder, you know, a supporting limb laminitis can occur in the front foot or in the hind foot. Yeah. 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 And so, and that's different than our other types of laminitis, right? Do the, do the other yeah. types of laminitis, usually they're, they're, they're forelimb, usually bilateral. Is that Correct. accurate? That's, that, that's, that's accurate. Yeah. Yeah. And occur sort of about the same time. Yeah. 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 I mean, one foot is usually affected worse than the other mm-hmm. based on the anatomy of the, of the horse's foot. Like if you, you know, a lot of horses don't have two symmetrical feet, you know, one, a lot of horses have one low heel foot and one upright foot, and the upright foot typically founders worse than the low heel foot. Mm. It, it, it's because there's more tension on the lamina in the toe on the club foot. Yeah, it, I always I have a theory that you know I think the lamina are compromised uniformly around the whole hoof, and just the part of the foot under the most load fails first. So gotcha. you know, most horses with laminitis will rotate because. Um, you know, horses are toe loaders. If you put horses on pressure plates, they load their toes. So most horses, when you give them laminitis, they're going to fail where there's the most stress. So since, the, since they're toe loaders, they're, the lamina and the toe are, are going to pull apart and separate. And that's why the horse with uh, two different feet typically will founder worse than the club foot because there's more stress on the toe and the club foot. Mm. So um, yeah, Bart alluded to this, different mechanisms. So we have the support limb laminitis. sounds like it's just vascular stasis because... The, the normal physiology has been disrupted. Now you have these other categories where, like yeah. say, there's maybe some systemic inflammation. What's going on there? Yeah, this is where it gets complicated, and all the answers aren't really there yet, but there's a lot of research going into it. But for the systemic inflammatory uh, conditions, like a horse with uh, the colitis or a pneumonia, uh, typically there's a um, kind of a pro-inflammatory state and, and there's, there's normal enzymes in the horse's foot, metalloproteinases, uh, that are designed for remodeling. So, you know, when a horse's hoof, just imagine a horse's hoof growing down past the coffin bone. It's all lamina in there, but the hoof has to grow past the coffin bone. So there's a mechanism in place for lamina to intermittently let loose in a staggered way so the hoof can grow down the 
coffinbone. Mm-hmm. This is done by metalloproteinases, and it's done in a very organized and, and staggered manner. They don't, you know, they don't just all let loose at once. So every time a horse grows a little bit of hoof, you'd have laminitis. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so it's done in a, in a very organized way. But there's some condition systemically that turns on these metalloproteinases. It's thought, it's a hypothesis. There's a lot of studies uh, supporting that. Um, but they're turned on in a very unorganized way. So these metalloproteinases are, are letting the uh, lamina loose all at once, and the horse gets laminitis. So it's an enzymatic, a normal enzymatic event gone awry mm-hmm. and, and uncontrolled. Okay. And so that's the inflammation. What about the, you mentioned the endocrine issues that can lead to laminitis. So what do we think the lesion is there? Yeah, these, the endocrine cases are a little different. Uh, they're a little slower in onset, a little more insidious in nature. The systemic inflammatory disease ones we talked about a second ago, those, those are scary. Those happen pretty quickly, mm-hmm. like within hours or days, you know, and, and those horses get very sore very quickly. These endocrine ones tend to be very slow onset. Um, you'll, you'll, sometimes you'll see some growth changes or some mild lameness, uh, and it'd be very slow progression. But it's thought that these horses with uh, endocrine problems have uh, high insulin levels, and they do. They have uh, you know, studies showing, you know, um, well, actually, you know, these endocrine horses have high insulin levels. They're insulin resistant. It's usually very hardy type breeds, you know, horses that are uh, maybe not meant to thrive on these fresh green, you know, very lush pastures and like we have here in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. They're, they're bred more for maybe more arid conditions, you know, maybe living in deserts. or So that's why we see a lot of these like, like ponies and, and these Spanish breeds uh, typically get this, uh, this kind of metabolic syndrome. And like I said, it's very, very hardy kind of horses. You see it in Morgans, Warmbloods. Thoroughbreds probably, probably the least likely to get it. I mean, they do get it, but they're probably less represented than the other, other breeds because they're not mm-hmm. as hardy. Um, but when horses have access to too much sugar, uh, their body kind of gets numb to it. You know, when horses ingest sugar, they, they release insulin, and insulin helps put the sugar back away into cells and store it for, for glycogen. And when these horses get too much sugar, they get uh, insulin resistant. And their insulin levels get very high, so the body stops listening to, to the insulin. And, uh, and, and high insulin has been shown in studies to create lamellar damage as well. And they, they, they've done studies, plenty of studies demonstrating that um, you know, constant infusion of insulin will create laminitis. And, and even though the histological changes you can see very early on, um, Usually the clinical signs are, are pretty slow and insidious, like I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. But the high insulin has uh, negative effects on the on the lamina, particularly. Uh, it causes some. It's it's, it's actually interesting the, the insulin story because, you know, the lamina need glucose, like a constant supply of glucose. Um, and so we thought, you know, okay, the horses are insulin resistant. You know, the lamina aren't. They don't have the. They're not listening to the uh, insulin, so they're not able to uptake glucose into the cells. But interestingly enough, the lamina don't need insulin to uptake uh, glucose into their cells. So they're, they're, they're insulin-independent you know, cells, that, so they don't rely on it. So that, that, that leaves the questions, you know, why, you know, if, if the basal cells of the lamina don't require insulin to uptake glucose, why, you know, why are they having such a, a problem with insulin resistance and why mm-hmm. do they fail? But but um, I think there's some hypotheses that high, that insulin um, can act like insulin-like growth factor, and, and it binds those receptors on the on the basal lamina, and that has some negative effects on the lamina. So that has some effects on uh, on the uh, 
cytoskeleton of the lamina. So it changes the shape of the cells and the cells will stretch. So you have like elongation of the cells and also those cells will reproduce in a very organized way. So you have this kind of thick rubbery lamina kind of tissue that forms slowly over time. These horses get unstable mm -hmm. and, and the lamina can eventually let loose that way. You mentioned so it's very complicated, you know, and, and there's a lot of research going into it. Right. You mentioned these um, changes in endocrine horses happen over a prolonged period of time as opposed to the other types. When you look at these hooves, can you actually see any changes in the hoof wall that make you think, aha, maybe? Yeah, I mean, there, yeah there are. Uh, okay, like I mentioned, you know, the, the, beta, the cells of the laminal hypertrophy, they'll, they'll grow, and, but not in a very strong way, kind of like this rubbery, dysfunctional tissue. But you'll also see these horses, their, their chestnuts will actually grow too. You look at some of these insulin-resistant horses, and you'll notice that their chestnuts will um, grow quite long, longer mm. than normal horses. And they'll need to be trimmed often. And even their ergot, you know, mm -hmm. behind their fetlock will, will grow. It'll, it'll be quite long. Um, but on the hoof capsule, you'll see some changes. You'll see uh, oftentimes growth rings. You, um, but, uh, but more telling is on the solar surface of the foot, you'll begin to see a stretched white line. So you have this elongation of the lamina cells and, and hypertrophy of that cells, and that leads to a lamellar wedge, kind of this thickened lamellar tissue. And you'll see that on the solar surface of the foot on the white line. And that's something you know, your farrier will probably pick up when he's trimming the foot. He'll say this horse has a stretched white line. You know what I mean? You want to get radiographs or a veterinarian look at him. And, you know, depending on what the horse does for a living, it's just a pasture pet. Maybe mm -hmm. no one's ever never noticed him being lame. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if you jog those horses or turn them tight, maybe sometimes you'll pick up some lameness issues eventually. But it could be kind of slow and, and hard to recognize. Mm. So, so that's a really good explanation of the four causes of laminitis. Mm -hmm. um, so, so what are the outcomes? Because maybe I, I want to talk just a minute because I think everybody's heard about sinkers and rotators and, and what the difference between that is and, uh, you know, maybe the significance of those two terms. Yeah, uh, so... You know, when horses rotate, the lamina just in the toe fail or let loose. So the, 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 so the cough bone will actually just rotate. Um, sinkers are when lamina around the, the entire you know, circumference of the horse's hoof are compromised and let loose. And, and the cough bone will actually just drop straight down. Or it can drop just to one side, to the medial side or to the lateral side. So... Like I mentioned earlier, you know, I do think the lamina are, are compromised all the way around. They just fail where there's the most stress. And, you know, so you see club feet will typically rotate more readily than a very low-heeled foot. A lot of times I'll see those very low-heeled feet want to sink to one quarter or the other just because of the conformation and the way the foot's built. Mm. Um, they're loading, you know, the biomechanics of each foot are a little bit different and based on conformation as well. You know, horses that toe in or toe out. Um, you know, may make them sink to a medial side or a lateral side, depending where most of the stress is. But some of these systemic inflammatory disease horses, they're, they're pretty scary. I mean, they get, they get showered with some kind of trigger factor that turns on these metalloproteinases, and sometimes they'll just let loose, you know, all, all at once, and they'll be quite scary. And, you know, those are very poor prognosis, obviously. Yeah, I know. Because we rely on healthy areas of the foot to shift things to when we try to get them to heal, and those horses have 
nowhere healthy to ship them to when the whole thing's falling apart. Yeah, that's always a fear for me with a bad colitis or a bad pneumonia, you know, and they get sore and you take the radiographs and you sort of, gee, gee I hope this thing's rotating and it hasn't just sunk. Yeah. Because, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's just so much worse. And those medial sinkers in my hands just, mm-hmm. yeah, they're just real panic time for me. Uh, you touched on, um, before we talk about medical things, uh, you touched on the mechanics. So if you're actually looking at this laminated horse, how are you trying to trim or shoe or temporarily support this hoof in a way that gives you the best chance of success? So what's your thought process of how you set that hoof up? mechanically yeah. before we think about anything medical. So we're in the acute phase of laminitis? Yeah, in the acute phase. My horse has just suddenly got sore. Yeah. You're walking in saying, okay, this is what I want to do. So what's your thought process? And, and in that, does the, does the, do these causes play into how you handle that mm-hmm. and, and, and yeah. the, your thoughts on prognosis? Yeah, so on the supporting limb cases, you know, since we know the deep digital flexor tendon pushes against those arteri- arteries and clamps them off, Typically, we do things to reduce tension on the deep digital flexor tendon in the supporting limb laminitis cases. So I'll, I will uh, wedge them up. I'll elevate them to mm-hmm. about, about 20 degrees. You know, so the bottom of that coffin bone is about 20 degrees to the ground is uh, typically what we'll do. And then, you know, dip, on those cases, other management things help as well. You know, you want, you want to get that horse. To, I mean, there's, there's very little... Um, there's, there's very little uh, ways to compensate for a horse that's not cyclically loading and unloading his foot. So you know, we're going to put something on his foot, but he's still going to be standing on mm-hmm. it all day. So when you put a wedge on a horse's foot, we, we may enhance the perfusion to the toe by, by stopping that clamping off of the arteries, but we do put a lot of stress on his heels. So some of those cases will stop them from rotating, but then sometimes they may start to sink you know, to the medial lateral quarter. So it, it's a very, these horses require a lot of monitoring, palpating their coronary band. Um, you know, so we're just, shift, we're just shifting the load from his toe to his heel, uh, maintaining perfusion to the toe. But sometimes those horses will start to, the lamina in the, in the quarters will get tired and let go. So, and sometimes, we, you know, you try to catch those early and you try to maybe decrease, decrease the height of the wedge or maybe do more of a roller motion kind of mm-hmm. shoe. But you really, hopefully you can get those horses out and walk them if it's not contraindicated, depending on what the other lesion is on the other leg. Um, and, and doing things to, to facilitate the horse to use his bad leg. You know, I think of like a, like a radial nerve paralysis horse. We've had lots of success. You know, those horses can't really extend their leg and they can't lock it in extension because they have a nerve paralysis and they want to just drag it behind them, you know. But we've had success on, you know, elevating the... Uh, the foot on the on the good foot, the supporting limb, you know, raising it a lot, like three inches, so those horses are more likely to mm. to advance the paralyzed leg, because you know a lot of those horses, you know, some not a lot of my, like in my experience, I think like half of them maybe do well, but I think the ones that um, you can get using it a little bit, it's like you get them using it and make it easier for them to use it, seem to recover a little better. Because some of those horses just give up. Mm-hmm. They, 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 like, I can't use this leg, I can't use this leg, I drag it around. And, and they, just, they just stop trying. So, you know, we do, we do things to, you know, raise the other leg, make it a little easier for them to advance it. So limb length is important, um, particularly in those cases. But horses that have a, a cast on the, on the uh, injured foot, you know, matching limb length is important as well. Mm. Make it easier for them to, uh, to stand squarely and advance, advance the injured limb. 
And, and Bart sort of alluded to, you know, the mechanics of like support limb laminitis as opposed to how you're trying to set up a endocrine or a infected infl- inflammatory lesion. Any differences? Um, a lot of times we start at the same place with, you know, since most horses with laminitis will rotate, we usually prophylactically treat them as if they're going to rotate. Mm-hmm. And then we change our plan accordingly depending how things progress. So if they, so we'll, a lot of times we'll start them all off in a wedge, like I described for the supporting limb case, but then that plan changes. If uh, I start feeling like the, the quarters are getting a little ledgy uh, or I could feel some cavitation in the quarters, which may indicate they're trying to sink, then sometimes they'll go from uh, a wedge to maybe a, a foot cast on these systemic inflammatory cases. Uh, um, and, um, yeah, so it's usually usually a wedge at first, and then we change our plan accordingly depending on what the horse tells us. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's no real crystal ball to tell, you know, where the laminate are going to let loose first, except just looking at the horse's conformation and and trying to see whether, which laminate are probably the most loaded is a good starting point. So, I mean, typically I'll I'll put a, a club foot in a wedge, and if I have a low heel foot, a lot of times I'll put it in a foot cast on some mm-hmm. of these really really compromised cases. I'll treat two feet differently sometimes. So, so how are you ele- elevating? Put, what, what kind of, describe the wedge you're putting on. You're not nailing a shoe on that. No, we're using a, a cuff. There's different companies that make uh, elevated cuff shoes. We're just bandaging them on because this is a, it's kind of a very, um, you want to do something that's very quick. You don't want to hold the foot up too long on these compromised cases. You don't want to stress the other foot. So we try to do something very quick. We usually do a, a, a slip-on cuff wedge shoe with sole support, and then we'll bandage it on. And you want something you can change because things are changing rapidly in these cases. Yeah. You know, so if it's glued on, you know, you got a, you got the sore horse, you're trying to remove a glue-on shoe, it's probably more traumatic than it needs to be. So I prefer to bandage them on in the acute phase. So if they're already wearing shoes, do you leave them on, do you take them off? That's a good question. To me, it depends on the kind of shoe and job the horse has. Is he overgrown? You know, is the shoe cut into his sole? Or is it a nice, tidy shoe and job with good support? Then I'll probably leave it. I don't want to create any more uh, damage or, or stress with holding one foot up or pulling the shoe off. And sometimes I'll just add the sole support and the cuff wedge shoe over top of his uh, nail-on shoe that he has on. Hmm. Well, what else are you doing? Are you putting ice? We, we talked ice. a lot about yeah. ice and, yeah, we about ice last and time. those kinds of things. Do you yeah. want them? I, I think for the supporting limb laminitis cases, I don't know if uh, there's really no st- nothing showing that cryotherapy or ice would be useful in those cases. But in the systemic inflammatory cases, uh, for sure, icing's been shown. You know, cryotherapy, you know, cooling the horse's foot down to five degrees Celsius at that high risk early phase, you know, before they get foot soreness is, is very helpful and, and, and you know, has been shown to uh, either prevent laminitis or significantly decrease the severity of laminitis when they get it. So we'll ice those cases, you know, when they're in medicine for, you know, and they're showing these systemic signs and we think they're high at risk, those horses will get iced. Mm-hmm. They'll get foot support and ice will be our first, that's our first thing we'll do for the feet on all those horses' feet. Mm-hmm. And we'll ice them for 72 hours, Unreal, just constantly. We won't take them out, we won't give them a break. So, so Peter, what kind of, when you see a medicine case, what kind of cases would you would you look at that you go, this, this is uh, headed towards... Laminitis. Yeah, the bad colitis and the, the dynamite ones are like the Potomac horse fevers. Yeah. Those things just seem to founder at the drop of a hat. Yeah, it's interesting why those. I don't you, know. I think colitis is 
may all colitis is different, but those, yeah. those seem to be particularly yeah. susceptible to laminitis. Yeah, they are. And yeah, as you say, you get a lot of endotoxin floating around, the bowels inflamed, but those potomics, I mean, it's, I think it's just something to do with the organism, you know, like maybe it just has more potent endotoxin that yeah. gets released as it turns over, but they're just dynamite. And you get a potomic horse fever, very proactive with those ones, and you just cannot be quick enough with the oxytet on those. If it's compatible history, shoot first, ask questions later with the oxytet. Yeah, no, no and I, I always tell our clients, we'll, we'll fix the diarrhea yep. it's, it's can we save their feet yeah that's, that's question and that's a huge prognostic indicator if those protomic horses start to show any foot problems at all you start having a different conversation with the client because up until the point yeah i mean this organism is extremely sensitive to treatment fluid support i mean the diarrhea can fix that very quickly but if they start to get any signs of uh, foot issues at all that just really knocks your prognosis all the way down. I mean, you may not lose them, but you may no longer have um, adequate athletic function because you're in a salvage situation. Uh, You mentioned the deep digital flexor tendon a lot, putting pressure on the vasculature. Um, What can you do about that besides the mechanics of lifting it up? What other procedures involved in the deep digital flexor tendon um, are useful? Yeah, well, uh, so in severe cases that don't respond to the shoeing mechanics and, you know, cases that are in the chronic stage of the disease now with the bones rotated, you know, there's a procedure where we'll actually transect the deep digital flexor tendon. On, uh, so that, that's usually reserved for cases that are not responding to shoeing um, or maybe the coffin bone has penetrated the sole and it's considered an emergency to, to realign things and get them growing sole tissue over the tip of the bone quickly before they get a whole lot of bone damage. Um, those are two reasons we would use it. The third reason I would use it sometimes is um, economics. Maybe uh, I've had this uh, endo- horse with endocrine issues for years and years, and, and you just can't get him out of shoes. And maybe the owner is looking for a way to um, have it be a little more cost-effective long-term. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've had horses where I've, I've I've told them we could probably cut his deep digital flexor tendon and, and maybe get him barefoot or into a normal shoeing program mm-hmm. rather than using these... Uh, you know, sometimes these shoes can be expensive, you know, over and over again for, for life of the horse sometimes. Mm-hmm. So what's that procedure and what what does it change that really makes the difference with these cases? Yeah, so, you know, if you look at the uh, biomechanics of laminitis, the, you know, the coffin bone, you know, it, it rotates. So now the, now the bone's not parallel to the ground, the tip of the bone's pointing down towards the ground. And you know, we'll do things shoeing and, and trimming wise to take tension off the deep digital flexor tendon. That you know, because because when that you know when the lamina are compromised in the toe, that tendon's pulling on the on the bone, and the bone's pulling against mm-hmm. the lamina. So you know, when shoeing mechanics fail, we can uh, we can transect the deep digital flexor tendon, and that allows us to trim the foot and get the bone parallel to the ground mm-hmm. almost immediate. Almost we get it immediately one way or the other with propping it up with special shoeing. Well, we get that bone now parallel to the ground, and it takes a lot of stress off the lamina in the toe almost immediately, and it reperfuses the uh, sole, the sensitive sole under the tip of the coffin bone, where they can start growing some sole again. Because when that bone's rotated, it's you got to imagine the whole foot's the whole coffin bone's surrounded by vasculature. You know, if you do a venogram on a horse's foot, it's just, it's just a really very abundant vasculature. And when that bone's rotated, it it compresses those vessels underneath it, and those horses don't grow sole. And, you know, when they don't grow sole, they get abscesses and chronic, you know, lots of, they need to grow tissue to, to, mm-hmm. to survive and, and replenish that tissue and maintain adequate protection under the tip of the coffin bone. So when you cut the deep digital flexor tendon and do this realignment shoeing, we call it, we, we put a shoe on that gets the bone parallel to the ground. It, it really uh, uh, decompresses 
those, those compressed vasculature and it get, they get the healing quicker. So you kind of take the opposite approach, right? Rather than raise the heels, yep. now you're, yeah, you're now, dropping the heels, now, raising the yeah, tail. Now, now that the digital flexor tendon is transected, you can, uh, no, no need for a heel wedge. You can just get them parallel right away. You know, but, but shoeing and, and, you know, you know, prior to doing the deep digital flexor tenotomy, there's lots of shoeing options we can use. I mean, there, there are, there are, you know, you're trying to get that bone, you know, on a horse that's rotated, you're trying to get that bone parallel to the ground with your shoeing, you know, cause you want, you don't want all that compression under the tip of the coffin bone, you know, you know, compressing that, that sensitive sole vasculature. So you want to get it parallel to open up those compressed vasculature. But, you know, one way of doing that is trimming the heel down. But if you trim the heel down, you put more tension on the deep digital flexor tendon and those horses will uh, rotate more. So mm. a lot of times it's trimming these horses to get them parallel to the ground and then wedging the whole system up again. So, so, you're, so, so you're trimming for alignment and you're shoeing to address the deep digital flexor tendon and to give them support. Th so, so it's not just trim this foot and slap this shoe on. A lot of times we're trimming to align that coffin bone, mm -hmm. and then we're trying to wedge it back up to address the deep digital flexor tendon. So it's it's multiple steps. There's a lot of balance involved in that. D does the yeah. end goal for the horse play into this? Say if I have I have a horse that I just a brood mare maybe that I want pasture sound versus uh, an athletic performing horse, or do most of the time the treatments pretty parallel to each other? Yeah, I mean pretty much parallel. I mean if if the, if the uh, the way I treat them is going to, I'm going to try shoeing first. I mean, deep digital flexor tenotomy, usually I try to save it for when I really need it and try to use shoeing. You know, once you cut the horse's deep digital flexor tendon, you're pretty much going to have a, a breeding animal or a pasture pet or a very light use horse. Not, you know, I'm not going to go back and be an athlete after the deep digital flexor tendon is transected. But, you know, I don't, I don't really like to do that unless I really have to. Because, you know, there are complications when you cut the deep digital flexor tendon. Um, you know, some of those horses will heal back. You know, once you cut that, you have two cut ends of the tendon, and that'll fill in with scar tissue. And sometimes that scar tissue could be a nasty thing. It can it can ball up and contract, and some of these horses can be good for a year or two, and then they'll start getting you know contracted on you from that ball of scar tissue at the cut ends of the tendon. So that, that is a complication we worry about. So that's a salvage procedure, last last ditch type thing. Yeah, it is. It is, yeah. But I think you have to, when you have to do it, you got to do it at the right time. You got to do it. You know, when, when a horse needs it, you got to recognize it needs it and do it. Um, you, know, you got to know when you're failing. Mm, yeah. 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 You really got to, I mean, the horse will tell you and you got to, you know, we have different tools. We can, you know, we monitor these horses with radiographs and venograms and their clinical signs. And, you know, if they're not, if they're not marching along and they're showing signs of healing with shoeing, then, you know, I wouldn't drag my feet to do it. I mean, the, the procedure probably gets a bad name because people probably do wait way too long before mm -hmm. they do it these horses usually have uh you know badly demineralized beat up coffin bones you know been, been abscessing for nine months and then they decide they're gonna you know maybe it's time to do a deep digital flexor tenotomy so the success rate of that procedure is obviously a lot better if you do it earlier before you get some of those uh permanent permanent changes to the coffin bone mm. yeah, cause I, 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 mean, I always say i want to my number one goal is to maintain the health of the coffin bone um, that's the foundation of the whole foot so, you know, if they're not growing sole and they're staying with poor perfusion and that bone's starting to get demineralized, uh, a horse with a demineralized beat up coffin bone is going to be, that's going to be a permanent source of lameness forever. So I'd rather have a horse with a deep digital flexor tendon and a healthy coffin bone, you know, than a horse with a beat up coffin bone, you know, right. and, and a tendon we didn't cut. Hmm. So you need to, if you get, you know, there's a appropriate time to do it. 
it's a salvage procedure, but I, I try to, we do a lot quicker than, you know, before they get to some of those end stage events and permanent damage to the foot. Hmm. So medically, what do you like to see going hand in hand with what you're doing mechanically? What are the things that you're hoping we will do to help you? <laughs> um, for the endocrine horses, those are, those are the most frustrating ones to me. Some of those horses are very hard to, mm-hmm. uh, to regulate their insulin levels. Um, you know, so I like to turf those to you guys when I can, <laughs> when I can to manage their endocrine system because sometimes that could be, you know, it, you know, we, we, we tell the owners, you know, keep them off, you know, keep them off the lush grass and limit their carbohydrates. But some of those horses need some medical attention. Yeah. I mean, some of these horses, their insulin levels are three, four, five hundred, you know, six hundred, um, you know. Yeah, it is hard they, to. They should be 30. Yeah, it is hard to sort of change that sometimes because it really comes down to diet and exercise, and it's really difficult. We've got a painful horse because it's laminitic yeah. to exercise to get that muscle mass to sink the glucose, and it's also very difficult to get the owner to actually objectively look at the horse and not feed it as much as they think it needs because that's defeated us a number of times, unfortunately, in that, yeah, you've just got to cut this thing down. It says, but you're starving my horse. It says, no, we're aligning its ins to its outs. Yeah. And um, it just can't take these carbohydrates. And there's plenty of feeds out there and there's plenty of dietary ways to actually satisfy the horse for bulk while actually controlling the starch because that is really the enemy. Yeah. is um, trying to get that glucose under control because unless you get the glucose under control, you can't get the insulin under control. And you can throw some medication at it, but ultimately not all of these are palatable. Like metformin is extremely useful, but the horses don't like it. I mean, it doesn't work forever. Um, it's difficult to give in a lot of situations. And um, you know, that's one of the best tools we have, but it's a short-term tool. It's, I don't think it's a long-term management because owner compliance becomes difficult. Yeah. Yeah, we we have to get them comfortable and and exercising and moving around is it's, it's so important. Yeah. A lot of these horses are, are uh, that we get like that are, are pasture pets. Mm-hmm. Some of them don't, don't even ride them. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they just do jobs to sit out you know, in a small paddock out front in front of the house. So you know, if, if, if you can get owners to exercise them somehow, once we get their feet stable enough, mm-hmm. that would be a huge huge plus. So you talked about you're, you're supporting limb laminitis. You you want those horses moving if you can. What about your bilateral? laminitis cases what, what do you want them doing yeah i mean it depends how stable they are and what what and what stage of the healing process they're in um you know, these endocrine horses they tend to be um these metabolic type horses they tend to be very hardy horses like we mentioned earlier and they usually have very robust strong feet I mean, sometimes i find these feet like you know fairly uh, easy to work with because it you know, they have good, strong walls, mm-hmm. you know, nice, robust, strong, good, hardy feet. So I, I like to get those horses comfortable and make sure they're stable. You know, how do we know they're stable? A venogram is one good way of knowing if they're stable. We can we can put a tourniquet on at the horse's fetlock and inject some radiopaque dye into the foot and shoot a radiograph, and it gives us an outline of all the blood vessels of the foot. And if those horses are unstable, they'll be shut down there will be no perfusion in certain areas of the foot. Those horses, obviously, you don't want to, you don't want to exercise them or move them around, um, cause more damage. So those horses, you would you would treat for a little bit longer with different shoeing mechanics, and maybe repeat the venogram and see if they're stable. Uh, another way you know a horse is stable is if they're growing sole and wall. I mean, when the bone's not stable and it's pressing on that sensitive sole tissue, that sole's not going to grow. So the hallmark of stability to me is tissue growth. So when I know, when they're growing sole and growing wall, 
and their comfort level too. It, but some of these metabolic horses could be could be very difficult. You can you can grow a lot of sole on them, and they can be growing good foot, and everything looks stable. But sometimes they just stay sore, mm-hmm. and usually you pull blood on them. And their insulin levels are still high, so we've mechanically got these horses doing well, looking great on radiographs, but. I mean, we got I got several cases that I can think of now where mm-hmm. they just stay sore because their insulin levels aren't being controlled. Yeah. So we can max out our mechanics and do all these great things, but it's got you know they got to treat the uh, the primary problem. Speaking about um, problems, is it possible that some of these modes of laminitis you talked about can occur together? Because my my nightmare scenario is the aged mare who's insulin resistant who retains her placenta <laughs> because. These come through the clinic, right? Oh, yeah. I yeah, mean, absolutely. these 17, 18 year old mares just getting that last fallout and they retain the placenta and maybe have a dystocia. You know, they're sitting on a knife edge as far as insulin resistant goes. All mares get insulin resistant from about 280 days gestation anyway. So you're just piling normal pregnancy physiology on top of their perverted physiology with their insulin anyway. And then they have a like an infectious inflammatory hit. And then they start to rock forward or back depending yeah. on where it hits them. And so how do you manage that horse that's potentially got all the mechanisms that you've talked about playing on at the same time? Which battle do you fight first? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, we, we, we definitely see those those cases where the feet are already compromised to begin with and, yep. and just it lowers that bar for the next insult to put them over the edge. Um, I mean, mechanically, I don't treat them a whole lot different. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I kind of treat them just how I would with a, a pro, you know, if they're already rotated. So you have the chronic case that's already rotated, and it comes into the clinic for a retained placenta and, and starts to and, and starts to get acutely laminitic again. I mean, I treat them. My trim would probably be a little bit different. I would, I'd probably set that horse up a little different. My trim first. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd probably, you know, if the if the, if the coffin bone had a high palmer angle and was pointed towards the ground. A horse would get a big heel elevation, but I probably trim them first to mm-hmm. get that coffin bone more parallel to my shoe. Mm-hmm. So it would be a, an emergency kind of heel wedging, but my trim would be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've seen I've seen you know, metabolic horses also get you know supporting limb laminitis, or mm-hmm. or maybe a, a metabolic case that was foundered in both feet. One foot was a clubby foot. He got really really sore on the clubby foot because it rotated more and. Now he bears all his weight on the other foot, and, and he's getting a supporting limb slash endocrinopathy, you know, endocrinopathy as well, um, laminitis. So yeah, they they're they don't all shoot straight. They, they throw us a lot of curveballs. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they don't all fit neatly. It's, I mean, it's good to like categorize them in your mind, but some of them yeah, just don't sit easily into one shoebox. Yeah, I mean. The majority of laminitis cases people see are the the metabolic, the, yeah. the endocrine ones. I mean, that's I think I read a paper where I think if you look at all the laminitis cases all around the world, I think it's like ninety percent of them are in that in that category. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe not us here in Kentucky. I think our numbers would be a little different. Yeah, with the breeding population and the thoroughbreds. But. Yeah, but the horse population, like the human population overall, is getting older. Like geriatric yeah. medicine is more of an issue. So yeah, I would agree with you totally. When I when I worked in Pennsylvania, I mean, I'd see. Mm-hmm. Sometimes two, three, maybe Cushingoid slash metabolic horses, new cases a day, because it was a, the land of the aged horse, which was like yeah. a big dog. Yeah, you know, and there was just so much of it, and you didn't see so many of the other things. But you're right here with the population we have, it's more of the other problems, right? The the sick horses having issues or the support limb post orthopedic things. Yeah, 
Yeah, and, it's, and, and the way we the way we treat them, the way we feed them. I mean, it's it's like three yeah. meals at the Golden Corral sometimes. Yeah, it is. Yeah, there's a, bur- there's a burger joint on every corner. <laughs> and you're talking about the the horses. Like, I mean, the things that worry me, are, as you say, horses that evolved like we did in the harsh climate when you didn't know when your next feed was coming from, like little Shetland ponies, those sorts of things. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. there's food everywhere, and they're just mm-hmm. not set up for that. They're supposed to be nibbling a piece of seaweed on a rock on the <laughs> yeah. Scottish coast, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now there's just luxury food, <laughs> and then it's no wonder they just blow apart and you know what i mean um as um as as the saying my dad has you dig your grave with your knife and fork and i think people do that to their horses they just food is love and i love my horse diet and exercise diet and exercise yeah uh, this time of year scares me this time of year scares me a little bit with uh just speaking of metabolic i mean we don't see a whole lot of metabolic in thoroughbreds but i seem to see it in stallions uh, mm-hmm. And I see it this time of year for some reason. It seems to be in the autumn and fall. Really? Yeah, when I have flare-ups, it seems to be. I don't know if it's just because they're breeding in the spring. You know, the spring grass is dangerous. The, the grass after the first frost is dangerous as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it gets uh, higher sugar content. Yeah. We just had our first, first frost last night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, I don't know if these stallions, I mean, you know, they're breeding. Maybe they're burning more calories in the spring. You know, now they're kind of sedentary. They're maybe they're just kind of chilling out and getting turned out and eating grass and 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 the sugar levels in the grass this time of year dangerous are dangerous as well. well maybe. But I seem to have flare-ups in the stallions this time of year. Unless people are trying to put some weight on them before, before the, winter the winter period, before yeah. so they can roll into the breeding season with a bit that, of extra condition that's, on. That's another thing with the endocrine. Yeah, it seems to be the fall. Like horses are getting ready for the winter. Yep. With these endocrine problems, you know, they're just getting more efficient. Yeah, they're it's like they're getting ready for hibernation yeah. or, 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 or no grass <laughs> yeah. mode, mode, you know, less grass, and they, yeah. they store up. Their body's getting ready, and yeah. it's a scary time of year. The fall has always been, you know, we always talk about the spring yeah. being a yeah. bad time for laminitis. I mean, I see a lot of new cases, but I have a lot of setbacks and uh, flare-ups. Things come out of control in, in, in the fall. Things in the fall. Yep, it's weird. I mean, it's been a pattern for sure. Yeah, and this year it's been warmer for longer. Yeah. And right. Yeah, so yeah, no, and we've gr- got we've got way more grass out yeah. there than we usually have. So yeah, yeah, it's greener for longer before that frost has hit. So I'm sort of thinking, Ugh. yeah. Oh well. Guns loaded. I mean, it's all. It's like you know, it's a perfect storm. Yep. Well, I mean, so, I, you know, we, you know, we'll uh, we'll really monitor our horses this time of year. You know, anyone that have cresty necks mm-hmm. or, or stallions that are looking a little, you know, a little overweight or, and get that phenotype of uh, any kind of endocrine phenotype like a crusty neck or abnormal fat deposits we'll, we'll pull blood on them and check them and maybe they go to a muzzle maybe they get the yeah. limited turnout yeah i'd it's, say you gotta be very proactive this time of year yeah i think it'd be time to be liberal application of the grazing muzzle <laughs> especially this year because you know that's the thing i mean these the horses you know they're just out there just mowing this grass down and everyone's thinking oh my horse looks good but it's also eating sponge cake yep do you like sponge cake if it's cooked right. Yeah. I would. Nothing like a good Victoria sponge. You go to England, they cook one of these Victoria sponges, yeah. and it's got lots of little cream and a little bit of jam on it. Just yeah, I've never been a sponge A little bit of powdered fan. sugar. It's, it's oh, hard for Really? Yeah, oh. no, this raised on chocolate, I guess. Yeah, well, there's worse things to happen. <laughs> pizza for me. Pizza? Pizza. Yeah, well. I got it for dinner and dessert. Well, pizza's a vegetable, right, with that tomato paste on it. That's what you're told. <laughs> Excellent. Now, any questions? No, I don't think so. Thanks, Scott. That was very thorough. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I appreciate you being here with us today and shed some light on some things. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, it's, it. it's really helped, you know, like sort things out. And in my mind is, you know, what your approach is and how you look at the different categories and how you approach them. Because, I mean, we leave, lean really heavily on you guys mm-hmm. um, for the management of our cases when they're really sick because... 
you know, the number of times I have this really sick horse come in, I think I'm just getting out of jail and all of a sudden it starts rocking back or the pulses start to come up and it's it's a fear yeah. we always live in, right, yeah, is that, you know, you're going to win the battle but you're going to lose the war because you're just going to lose those feet and horses, you know, if they're set up, if there's an underlying issue, one little challenge uncovers it and then away you go. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a, it's a stressful time, not only for a veterinarian, but for owners. And yeah. Having you guys who have seen that so many times before to, be, you know, tell us to hold on, you know, we can, we can get around this corner yeah. or and just, just knowing when it's, when it's time to stop too yeah, is, you, you is stop, important. You don't know what the disease, you know, you don't know the future, what the future is going to bring. You don't know the, where that disease is going to take you. Yeah. yeah. There's so many different outcomes. And yeah. It, like I said, the whole horse's future is in jeopardy when, yep. when you're faced with that situation. Yeah. And the thing is, there's yeah. a whole lot of pressure on four little things. Yep. That's a whole lot of horse. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, we've been here with Dr. Scott Morrison of the Rudin Riddle Podiatry Service sharing his wisdom on laminitis. See you next time.